this type of play, this is something a play can do, a movie can do it too, but this is something a play can do um, where it prompts you to use your brain. Hello and welcome. It is another episode of No Script, an unscripted conversation about theater's best scripts. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. And I am Jackson Nikolai. And we are here again. The episode releases on a Monday, so I'll say happy Monday to those of you who are listening to us on a Monday. But we know many of you listen to us throughout the rest of the week as well. So to those of you who aren't listening on a Monday, happy Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, Saturday, or (laughs) Sunday. We like to cover our bases here. <laughs> it's it's the nature of podcasts, you know? If we were yeah. a television show releasing every Tuesday night, we could be sure. But in the age of digital media, I mean, who yeah. knows when people watch stuff? Who knows? Happy 2032, everyone who is listening in that year. That's bold. Wow. <laughs> Wow, we would have done a lot of plays by 2032. This would be Hopefully. a very old episode in yeah. our run. <laughs> Hopefully people are still writing plays at that point. Oh, that will definitely happen. All right, well, after all that tangent, we are talking uh, today about a play called Harvey by Mary Chase. Harvey yeah. won the Pulitzer Prize for Drama in 1945, so we are pulling from that middle 20th century uh, prize-winning play section of American theater. Uh, it opened in 1944 at the 48th Street Theater on Broadway and closed about four years later after uh, an incredible run of 1,775 performances. There are a couple of productions that came about later, including a Broadway revival in the 70s and then actually a Broadway revival in 2012 where Jim Parsons played Elwood. Huh. I did not know that. That's awesome. Yeah, that's a good casting for that part. Yeah. And of course, the the movie with Jimmy Stewart with the uh, animation of the rabbit and all that fun stuff. Oh, no, I'm sorry. You're Jimmy thinking Stewart. of Who Framed I, Roger Rabbit. I did. I did. Yep. <laughs> Jimmy Stewart is right. The animation is wrong. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, so it's it's had many iterations and is done freak, uh, frequently. Yeah, this our, is a uh, main stage of community theater and of high school theater primarily anymore as a lot of the plays from that area of America theater are um, yeah but it's still very very funny it's a rolling comedy with big characters and uh you know uh, hilarious exchanges things like mm. that that we don't see a ton in um theater anymore even in comedies right right and we'll synopsize just a little bit so we'll introduce you to those characters um obviously if you've done this play or if you've read this play you're going to get more out of our conversation because we jump around all the time but we like to synopsize just a little bit uh this play is centered around a kind of a family unit which uh concerns Myrtle May Simmons, Vita Louise Simmons and Elwood P Dowd. So Elwood P Dowd and Vita Louise Simmons are brother and sister and uh Myrtle is Vita's daughter. They are living in this house that was given to them by Vita and Elwood's mother, I believe. And um, they, uh, uh, Elwood, Elwood inherited the place, and then uh, Vita and Myrtle moved out to be with him. Well, when they did, it turns out that uh, over the course of time, Elwood has uh, found a friend. 
uh, in the world, uh, who he calls Harvey, who is an invisible rabbit that follows him around. He holds conversations with him. He uh, is able to uh, introduce him to people, and he, he buys extra tickets for the movies for him, and etc. So uh, it kind of concerns that we pick up the play. The inciting incident for most of the action is a large party that Vita and Myrtle throw to... Um, kind of get back into society, as it were. And they try to get Elwood out of there with Harvey, and uh, he winds up showing up and ruining the party, which forces or prompts Vita to head to a sanitarium to try to check uh, Elwood in to that place. And that's kind of where everything begins to to spiral from there. She, she meets up with the doctors there. Uh, Lyman Sanderson will be calling them. I'm going to be doing doctors and nurse for this. Uh, but Dr. Sanderson, Dr. Chumley, and then Nurse Kelly is uh, are the three people there. And then the muscle of the place is Wilson in the play. I think that's pretty good for the start. We'll, we can jump off and be introduced to a couple of... There's a couple other uh, characters. There's the uh, Betty Chumley, who is the wife of Dr. Chumley. There's Judge Omar Gaffney, who is the, the uh, family's attorney. And E.J. Lofgren, who is an important character who we'll bring up later. <laughs> yeah, I, I mean, it's got a, a fairly large cast for being just a set comedy. Um, it's, it's set primarily in two locations. It goes back and forth between like the library at this mansion where the Simmons live and then Chumley's Rest, which is the sanitarium. So we really alternate back and forth between those two locations. And one thing that happens over the course of the play is that the characters in the play and the audience member start to ask some questions about the nature of Harvey the Rabbit. Right. You begin the play with following the assumptions of at least most of the rest of the characters, what Vita thinks is a little bit unclear, um, but following kind of the natural assumption, which is that Harvey is Elwood's imaginary friend. Right. And then I think that the way that Mary Chase reveals and pokes holes in that theory across the course of the play is really interesting and one of the great features of writing, I think, that happens. So let's see, Jackson, if we could just kind of mark the ways in which she starts to poke holes in the idea that Harvey is simply an imaginary friend as we go. Right, right. Well, to start with, we have... Uh kind of corroborating evidence almost via Vita. She's one of the first hints that we get that maybe Harvey is more corporeal or uh, more uh, more there than we think he is. Uh, she goes to try to check Elwood in, and she's having the, the uh, kind of initial conversation with Dr. Sanderson, who is the intern of Dr. Chumley. And uh, Dr. Sanderson is... Um, interviewing her and she says you've got to get Elwood in he's crazy he sees this rabbit everywhere and she tells him in a moment of confidence truth be told every once in a while I see that rabbit too and <laughs> and uh which leads to a, a wonderful uh, mis uh mistaken kind of almost mistaken identities uh, series of events because Sanderson begins to think that she is the one who is actually crazy and right that he, he like insinuates that that uh, Elwood was going to have Vita locked up because she's seeing the rabbit. And so in a moment of like cunning trickery, Vita's like, well, I better get lo Elwood locked up instead so right. he doesn't get me locked up. And, yep. and so uh, Sanderson decides, well, she's the crazy one. She's really seeing the rabbit. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
And so there's that there's the kind of switch over there, and he brings Elwood down. Elwood has been checked into the sanatorium at this part, and basically Sanderson just turns it around. He's like, he's like, no, 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 bring him out, lock her up, and he brings him down. And then the other kind of hint we get in that just in that scene alone is, or at least the shadow of doubt. There's a way to explain it, but there's an extra hat and coat for Harvey that Elwood brings in. Um, he leaves it on the desk. It's all Elwood, but characters begin questioning, right? They begin, uh, he leaves the coat there when Elwood leaves the coat there when he leaves, assumedly with Harvey or Harvey already left. And, um, and, uh, and actually, I think that Harvey actually stayed uh, that he can't find him. He, he leaves to go look around for the sanitarium and comes back and Harvey's not in the room anymore. But I think at the end of that scene, we have at least somewhat of a hint that Harvey's still in the room. Now uh, it's important to note, if you've not seen the play or read it, Harvey is not played by an actor, at least in the imagining of the playwright. I suppose you could, but that that's not how it's imagined by the playwright. Harvey is a fully invisible a fully imagined character by the characters in the play. It's just that in the world of the play, he might be he might be more corporeal <laughs> than that. Um, right. So he, they Elwood leaves this hat and coat behind. The hat especially is significant because the hat has two holes cut in it. Right. And the characters start to wonder about what what's this hat doing here. Eventually, they realize their mistake that Elwood's the one who's really imagining Harvey. That they've locked up the wrong person. So they pull Vita down and you know apologize to her, get her out. Um, but then at the end of it, um, what has happened is that is it is it Betty Chumley? Is that right? Yeah, Betty yep. Chumley, the wife, has had a few conversations with Elwood where she's talked about the fact that he, that he has this friend named Harvey. She doesn't know that Harvey is imaginary. And, and in the course of those conversations, Elwood reveals that Harvey is a puka, yeah. which doesn't mean much to me before reading this play and doesn't mean much to the characters in the play. So the end of scene two, the end of act one, they, the character Wilson looks up in the encyclopedia what a puka is. Mm-hmm. And what does he learn, Jackson? A puka is a creature of Irish mythology um, who is uh, often uh, in agricultural co- uh, context. It shows up to people, is invisible for a lot of the time. It can take on a lot of different forms. It can help or hinder. It's kind of a trickster character in Irish mythology. So they begin to piece together that maybe this is... Or the thought begins to occur to them that maybe this is a creature of some sort, to some of the characters at least at that point. Right. So Wilson is looking up this encyclopedia entry at the end of (laughs) Act 1 and gets some sort of message. Uh, The book, it's it's, it's not totally clear what is being imagined, but it's like either the book now contains words like, how are you, Mr. Wilson? Or perhaps he's hearing someone say it. Some sort of otherworldly interaction is happening with Mr. Wilson, who basically just freaks out and runs off. (laughs) And that's the end of Act One. So that's how this, this first two scenes end, which I think is masterful. We spend the whole two scenes imagining that Harvey is this completely fabricated creation by Elwood who exists only as an imaginary friend of that Vera because she's under so much or Vita I'm sorry Vera's from 4,000 miles yeah. uh, Vita <laughs> uh, is because she's under so much stress and because she's so high strung as a person has sort of started to imagine Harvey as well by suggestion 
and, right. and that all these people are crazy. And then at the end of scene one, or scene two, I'm sorry, act one, Wilson reads encyclopedia entry that Harvey is a puka, which is like a spirit of some sort, yeah, and then yep. gets some sort of spiritual encounter with an otherworldly being and freaks out, <laughs> and that's the end of the first third of the play. Right. Everything yep. you thought about what's been happening is suddenly thrown wide open. And the door mm-hmm. of possibilities is pretty large for what is actually going on in this play. Yep. Yeah, and 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 it and it just continues to build, right? And this in the second act, there is uh, Elwood predicts that someone is coming home. The neighbor aunt is coming home, or something like that, which turns out to be true. Um, there's there's a very like at the end of uh, I think it's scene it's scene one or two in the in the second act, but at the end of that we see the physical. Uh, consequences of Harvey actually being in the room, which is a fascinating piece of technical theater. I'm sure that that many designers right, have a, had fun it, playing. It with. would be a huge collaboration between the sound designer, the lighting designer, and the set designer. And potentially, if you were involving it, I don't know that you would in this production, but potentially projection designer too. I suppose you could do some fun things with footprints or something. Yeah, uh, yep. but it's this moment where Harvey is revealed to be corporeal at least in some way or I suppose the alternative is that the audience is also going crazy is the insinuation (laughs) one of the two because Dr. Chumley who has been having drinks and dinner we don't see this scene we just hear about it been having drinks and dinner with Elwood and Harvey and has been has disappeared for a long while he finally comes back to the sanitarium and says Wilson who's the kind of the 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 we didn't introduce, introduce him he's oh, the yeah. sanitarium strongman he's yeah. the one who drags the patients around and brutalizes them you know this is the middle 20th century the 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 mental illness help at the time was, was not awful. good and that's what happens in this play but Wilson yep. is is in the is in the office and he sees Chumley and Chumley's like lock the door Wilson someone's coming someone's following me well who Doctor Chumley I don't want to talk about it so they yeah. lock themselves in the office and this what the the scene is this sort of outer waiting room of the office and so there the waiting room is empty Chumley and Wilson are hidden in the office with a locked door and the end of the scene is that the audience hears someone walk across the room <laughs> yep unlock the door enter the office close the door and lock it again. Yep. So a door needs to open. You need to hear some things. You need need to, yeah, you need to see some things. It's a great kind of like, oh, no, he actually is here kind of moment (laughs) in the play. Yeah, I mean, you have to imagine that's that's the first time that we have experienced Harvey in any corporeal way. And you have to imagine as an audience, you're just like, he's real. Yeah. He's real. <laughs> and you be, you be, you've been beginning to suspect that the whole time as different characters sort of understand the difference between Harvey just being an imaginary friend and being a spirit with like invisibility powers or something of the sort. Uh, and then you finally encounter him as a character on stage. And uh, and then something similar happens at the very end of the play where you also get another moment of Harvey interacting with the physical world. Yeah, yep. Let's kind of talk about the theme of, of belief then in that category and, and, and maybe trust. So uh, Elwood is, is a character around – Elwood is the character who is Harvey's defender. And he interacts with everyone – not defender. He is the one who can see him and thus introduces him, makes people pay attention to him, etc., other people can't see him, so they and and they... Elwood is so convinced that Harvey is real that yeah. it doesn't even really occur to him that other people might not. 
he he when people ask him questions about Harvey or insinuate they they just go over Elwood's head entirely. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean he's so in the world of Harvey and convinced of his existence that he he just can't even recognize that other people wouldn't. So he's got that sort of strong faith in Harvey without any doubt. Yeah. And why do you think it is that people don't believe him for that? I mean, the rabbit's invisible, but let's go a little bit <laughs> deeper. Well, well right. I mean, what 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 is true of the given circumstances of the play is that Elwood and Vita's mother has passed away. And that Vita says this Harvey nonsense started when mother died. And he became a heavy drinker and at that point started babbling to a person who was supposedly in the room with him. And then later we learned that he was a six-foot-tall white rabbit who wears a polka dot tie. (laughs) So, of course, it's nonsense. He's drinking himself to death and it's causing him to go crazy because of all this grief at the death of their mother. That's what they set up to explain Harvey as uh, as Elmwood's imaginary friend. Mm Mm-hmm. And we corroborate that, right? There, the first scene that uh, we see Elwood eventually get to be alone in a room, he takes out a book that is hiding, you know, a fifth of whiskey or something like that. He's and he and he, uh, you know, drinks drinks away at the end of the scene, and he, as he's talking to Harvey, so it's heavily insinuated to us as the audience as well that there's some there's some problems going on in addition to that. Right, and and. You know, as as I do, I read the play twice through just before recording the podcast. And so the second time through, you notice that even in that first scene, Vita's sort of unwilling to say Harvey's, you know, really not there. To, to right. She's scared of saying the name Harvey because she really doesn't want to interact with him again. She's previously seen him and scared him off, and she doesn't want that to happen again. And then there's a moment where um, the daughter says something like, oh, you know, I, I hate that Uncle Uncle Elwood has cast out all of our friends. He's you know he's been so cruel to us. Why can't and Vita says it's not his fault. And the daughter yeah. says, well, whose fault is it? And and Vita says, oh, I know whose fault it is. <laughs> and you learn later in the play that she has some level of belief that this is a real creature that has decided to intervene in Elwood's life. Yeah. And so she blames the creature somehow. Yeah. Which just keeps Throughout the play, she is forced to kind of deal with it, and she is uh, deal deal with the presence of Harvey, and she is consistently alarmed. I think that's that's really true throughout the play. Like there's an issue, a, a point when a painting comes that Elwood has commissioned to the, to have Harvey in it, um, or a version of Harvey in it, and he hangs it over the picture of their mother or something like that. And, uh, right, yeah, the feature, the, the the set descriptions, which of course are incredibly large in a play right. from this time period, include that the the sort of notable set piece of the library setting is a huge painting of Vita and Elwood's mother. And yeah. then in scene, it would be three, uh, Elwood uh, p- takes this large painting, like you said, that he has had painted of himself and Harvey and hangs it over top of them. And Vita in that scene doesn't see the painting and sort of is talking to Dr. Chumley or maybe it's the judge and turns around at some point and sees Harvey there in front of her and screams and freaks out and then realizes it's just a painting. But I I, I mean, I just want to note how genius it is to introduce that painting into the play. The Mm. one visual representation we get of Harvey and it's a painting. 
something yeah. that could be real and might not be. And and even more genius, Vita, right before she sees the painting, gives a monologue about the differences between paintings and photographs. Right, And she exactly. talks about how painting, photographs are just mechanical representations of the real world. But paintings are representations of the real world, but also of our dreams for the real world. Yeah. And so the only visual cue we get of Harvey is something that the characters in the play describe as being a visual representation <laughs> of our dreams for the world. I mean, that's just a genius introduction of the visualization of this rabbit. Absolutely, yeah. <laughs> I love that monologue too. It'd be, it's a fun, fun. It's one of the lines that kind of stuck with me after reading it. Was that was that line there? I think the other, um, the other way that they cast a shadow of disbelief over Elwood is uh, by by residing in the realm of psychiatry for about half of the play. And um, like you know, pseudo psychology of the of the or pseudo psychiatry of the of the middle twentieth century, right? What we would consider old fashioned, <laughs> right, 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 right. Yeah, we we probably wouldn't ever use psychiatry right now, except in some some instances. But, um, but yes, uh, they they are primarily dealing with the uh, the afflictions that psychiatry named in the middle of the twentieth century, and the the way the ways of treating it, which are mostly awful like injections of serums and uh you know untested home cooked serums right (laughs) things that apparently turn people even into more crazy people at Mm -hmm. times i mean what is it that chumley says this is like serum number 997 or something (laughs) which means he said 996 (laughs) tries and 996 other patients out there suffering from the results of his medical malpractice oh my gosh yep and they stick them in these big tubs and forcibly strip off all their clothes and right, throw and them in these freezing cold yep. bathtubs. Or I mean, it's just barbaric. And I, yep. I, the play is from the is is you know is written of the time, so it probably wouldn't have seemed that way to people uh, watching. Um, but it certainly does now, and it actually it it almost it adds a level of non reality to the script. Which sort of, uh, which sort of lends itself to there being a spiritual rabbit involved yeah. somehow in the characters. I actually like that you brought that up because I think I think it's this this play. It would be tempting to make some things um, critiquey about it, right? So it could it, it, there there are ample opportunities for it to be critiquing. Let's say we're back in 1944, critiquing the psychiatric system of sanitariums. Um, I think that would, which it does. I think it does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's, there's opportunity for it to critique, um, uh, how families treat mental illness and mental health. Um, by the end of the play, it, they just, the family unit is there deciding whether or not Elwood should take this serum. And, uh, Elwood is in the room. Everyone is letting everyone else choose what happens. Um, and eventually Elwood says, well, if Vita wants it, I'll take the serum. Um, and uh, so I think that's that's something. I think drinking could also be a critique of of this uh, could be critiqued in this play because uh, Elwood drinks a lot um, in keeping with an Irish spirit <laughs> that is following him around. Um, he he goes to a lot of bars. His address book has like twenty bars in it. He starts talking about that he frequents uh, and and meets with people there. So I think there's a lot of opportunity for this to critique things, but I also think that's it's not its purpose. Um, 
I think it's a it's a folk tale. It's a mythology. We're we're supposed it's a comedy certainly. Um, it's not a, a tragic comedy or anything like that. I think we're we're it it invites us to see what happens. I, I'm going to jump off the mythology deep end here. It invites us to see what happens when a mythological creature plays with the lives of humans. Um, it's right. Kind of an, it's it's almost in line with like Greek. Uh, you yeah, know, you can imagine stories about Greek gods coming down and messing with human beings and and what might have gone on. I, I totally agree. Yeah. So I think I, I, I the certainly the the uh, the way that the uh, psychiatrists uh, the psychiatrist brigade let's call them. There's three of them that really all all exist. They all they are consistently messing up things. I think that is absolutely. Uh, could have been, especially in the time, a bit of a, a jab at the system of that. But also, it's not it's not like an it's not like an incredibly uh, refined jab necessarily. It's just like Harvey is messing with these people, <laughs> and you get to kind of watch as they fumble around with this spirit who is invisible and can be the trickster with them. Right. I, th- I certainly agree. I think that it's it's not the purpose of the play to provide critiques of various systems of society. It does that by way of comedy, by presenting a team of bumbling uh, sanitarium workers and saying, you know, is this the kind of these are the kind of people that work at these kind of places. They're doing things that don't really help people, by the way. But right. It, that's not <laughs> the goal of the play. It does, however, I think. Lend like I was like I was speaking about the the settings really lend themselves to a heightened sense of non-reality. Mm-hmm. The sanitarium, first of all, because it's a, a really non-functioning sanitarium, lends itself to the sense that anything could happen here. Right in this case, right. they they believe that they mistakenly lock up two people right in a row. Yeah, that they mistakenly yeah. lock up Elwood and realize, oh snap, we lock, we stripped him of all his clothes and stuck him in a tub by mistake. Shoot, and then they <laughs> do it again <laughs> to someone else. Yep. And I mean, you start to just believe, well, in the in the walls of this place, anything could happen. These right. characters could do anything. But then, what's the other setting, Jack? Besides the sanitarium, where's the other place that these scenes take place? Well, yeah, it's the house. It's and the, the library of the yeah. house. Right? Yep. A library <laughs> is a place where anything can happen. It's full of literature <laughs> and story. It's it's yeah. sort of the two realms in which Harvey exists. One is like you were speaking about in mythology and story, and the other is in the world of psychology and in, in the imaginations of the people who are there. And the play mm-hmm. pivots back and forth between what Harvey is, an imagining of the brain, a malfunctioning brain, or an imag- or or sort of a real life interpretation of these mythological stories. Yeah, that's that's awesome imagery of those 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 two those two worlds in which which are trying to define what Harvey is because you know previously uh, throughout history Harvey would just be a mythological creature. There's 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 tales of Puka. I, I, I'm a mythology nerd. I went on a, a Puka tear before I this. I figured that you would come to this conversation <laughs> with some rad facts about Puka. <laughs> 
but it's true in Irish mythology. There's they appear as ponies a lot of the time. It can take on any animal form. They appear as ponies, and there was talk of like the former generation hate like despise them because they came in and like rode people <laughs> away and t- stole them. But then other instances of like children bumping into the invisible forms of pukas and giving them hats or or coats, and then they give them a golden goblet or something like that. So it's this like. <laughs> <laughs> it's it's this this great kind of uh, dichotomy of going from the past of of just dealing with people who who would have seen let's say people saw Harvey in the past they would say oh you've seen you've seen a mythological beast you're special or whatever they thought you were special and thus this um, but now you're on the cusp of psychiatry especially in America where they're like trying to diagnose what that is and I think that's 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 what this play holds in tension is the two worlds beginning to collide yeah I think you're absolutely right and while we're there let's talk a little bit about Harvey and the actual decisions made by the potentially the character Harvey in the play. One of the most obvious is the decision to hang out with Elwood. And it's one that the characters remain confused about over the course of the play. No one who believes that Harvey is really there, not all the characters do even by the end of the play, but the ones that believe Harvey is a real creature, even they don't really understand why this creature would hang out with Elwood. Why Mm -hmm. do you think, Jackson? Why does Harvey select Elwood to befriend? Hmm... That's a great question. So we do get the scene described when they met. It's kind of a under a lamppost scene almost where Elwood is walking home from a bar, yeah? Um, right, he, he, and I think notably, we'll see where you go with this, but I think it's notable that what he does is put uh, his really drunk friend in a cab yeah. and sends him home safely. Yep. So you have um, that scene. He's walking home, and and he sees him for the first time, and they begin to hang out there. And I think I think you're right. That is a, a really indicative moment for Harvey. I think that act of sending home a drunk friend and being sure they come home safely. Maybe even the drunk friend saw Harvey before. Um, that you you kind of begin to wonder that, and if this is like the trade off moment <laughs> where <laughs> Harvey has found a new person to watch. Um, but certainly. Again, going back to mythology, the the puka show up in uh, situations where people need them, um, or where where people would would be, would be kind of annoyed the most by their trickery. Um, that's kind of the dichotomy of them. But but I think Elwood, having newly lost his mother, and uh, kind of coping with it by go- frequenting. Uh, a lot of bars and and going around and drinking quite a bit needed the presence of Harvey and Harvey sensed it um, and and was able to kind of join him on his travels and give him advice as he goes. You get the sense that Harvey is kind of almost shepherding this guy <laughs> a little bit from time to time and which which uh, um, Elwood returns in kind by trying to introduce him to all of his friends and be very genteel to him. Right. I I really like the connection you made there, especially to the idea of losing his mother. We're not totally clear how long ago it happened, but we do know that it caused Elwood a lot of grief and potentially might be the spark of his alcoholism. And the other thing that we know about Elwood is that he never got married because he stayed with his mother. That's what Vita says, that for, for whatever reason, Elwood stays with his mother and develops that relationship instead of developing a relationship with another young woman and getting married. So when Elwood's mother dies, he's alone. 
He has no partner in the world. And Harvey then comes along and becomes a partner for him, mm-hmm. uh, a, a pretty constant partner as we as we come to learn. I also think that it is true that Elwood is a really kind and generous person who gets along with anyone, who is, mm-hmm. has the ability to have conversations with anyone. We see that feature of Elwood's character uh, become – you know, establish itself again and again and again over the course of the play. And that's another feature, I think, that gets changed how we see it. Because in the beginning, when you think Elwood's crazy, the fact that he can just go around and introduce himself and shake hands and talk to somebody and invite him to dinner seems like a facet of his craziness. It seems like, well, that's just another crazy dude. I could never talk to somebody like that. He's so open and friendly. He must just be insane. But then over the course of the plays, you realize that he's more sane than you thought, that he is actually just interacting with a spirit creature. He hasn't imagined a hallucination. Then you start to say, oh, no, that's just a feature of him as a person. Mm-hmm. And you start to wonder if maybe that's not part of Harvey's attraction to him. Yeah. Is he's just so stinking nice. He <laughs> sticks his friends in cabs and cares for them. He, he's quick to buy drinks for people at the bar. You know, what, what, what does he do during the day? They learn later on. What does, what does uh, Elwood do during the day? He sits at the bar and listens to his friends' problems. Mm-hmm. That's what he does, like, for his livelihood, you know? Right. <laughs> That's the kind of person that Harvey, this spiritual puka, might want to interact with. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and you you see that like the he he invites the the doctors to come out to the bar with him as well. Um, and and. That is the I think that's why the tension of the final decision is so much larger. We the uh the the, the character we haven't talked about much yet is the cab driver who uh brings Vita there who has a, a stunningly important role for a character whose yeah, <laughs> whose title it, is a cab it's, driver. It's a little bit of Deus Machina to introduce <laughs> yep. that that character to come in and sort of provide the situation with which to change to save the day. <laughs> yep. But it 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 manages to stay probably on the right side of that by making sure that it's characters' decisions which ultimately affect the climax of the show. But Slash Harvey's just, med- meddling. Right, but let's just recognize <laughs> it's real darn convenient that the cab driver not on the door right before the Elwood gets the injection. Right. Yep. Yeah, and the moment we're describing is right at the end, the whole the whole family is there and all the doctors are there. Pretty most of the characters of the play are there, all trying to get uh, a decision to happen. Um uh, eventually the doctors all get aligned um on uh Elwood should take this this uh serum, some out of a diagnosis, some out of a more nefarious means. Like And Vita out of a more nefarious means too. I don't think she comes out of this play looking very good because yeah. she, like Dr. Chumley at the end, reveals sort of that she believes in Harvey and is using the excuse of this uh, barbaric psychiatry at the time as a means to achieve a goal for themselves rather right. than really caring for Elwood. For Vita, it's just having Harvey out of her life because mm-hmm. Harvey scares the bejeebas out of her. And right. for Dr. Chumley, he wants Harvey for himself. <laughs> he wants Harvey to, like, freeze time for him. <laughs> and he can go hang out with young women all the time. Yeah. And he wants to fa- – and, like, at one point, uh, one of the young nurses comes and kisses uh, Elwood because he's just such a charming old man. And she's so happy because she's fallen in love with this other guy. Uh, whatever. And Dr. Chumley is like, do young women just come up to you and kiss you all the time? Right. And Elwood says, yeah, kind of. <laughs> and Dr. Chumley's like, I have to get my hands on this rabbit. <laughs> 
<laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> so that's why he wants to give Elwood this injection. Dr. Sanderson, because he still believes in this sort of pseudo-psychiatry that they're enforcing at the time, and uh, the young daughter, also in a sort of a nefarious, uh, because uh, Uncle Elwood is embarrassing to her. She also right. doesn't believe in the rabbit and thinks he is crazy. But a large part of her motivation is just that he's scaring away potential suitors. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And Wilson's just mean. Um, but, uh, <laughs> but yeah, you're sitting in that moment, and and we as the audience especially have begun, like you said, to, to wonder how much of this is just Elwood, the way he is. And then uh, the cab driver comes in and describes what happens to people. He says, I bring people up here all the time, and on the way here, they're all smiles, they're very happy, they leave a great tip, and then on the way back, they're nasty. <laughs> and... Uh, then they uh, they don't leave a tip that yes they're they they are concerned with the real world again but um, they 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 are not the nice people that they were on the way up here. Well, and even before that, before he gets into that discussion, he just needs to be paid, and so yeah. that that's the moment of a little extra convenience that he happens to knock on the door to get his money right before the injection occurs, and because mm-hmm. Vita can't find her coin purse, she has to go in and stop the injection and get Elwood out here because he's got the cash. Right, delays so that, it again. That's where the conveniences start to stack up a little bit until the end, where you learn that maybe the conveniences are a little bit the result of Harvey. Yeah, yeah, you get the sense that Harvey, which is, is... like, I mean, that's the definition of Deus Machina, right? It's like. <laughs> Intervention a by a god. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, he steals her purse. Um, he's he you know he delays things. This is right after he has you know snuck his way into the locked office. So he's in the room with them as he's listening to them all. Um, and he's you know, see, seeing again. I don't think <laughs> Elwood comes out really well. Both both in uh, the estimation of the play, but also in Harvey's eyes. He's self sacrificing. He probably looking at Harvey says, if Vita wants this, I'll do this and goes into the next room to get an injection to basically remove Harvey from his conscious. So at that moment, I think Harvey then kicks it into high gear, steals a purse, gets the, gets the cab driver to come in. And so absolutely a huge instance of Deus Machina. (laughs) The other character that we haven't talked a ton about is nurse Kelly. And Mm -hmm. uh, Kelly has sort of a, running flirtation with Dr. Sanderson. They're both young, semi-single people. They're both sort of loosely dating other people. Um, but they have a kind of constant back and forth of what they're... they're it's almost like a kindergarten, right? They, they like each other so much that they just end up being mean to each other for right. a bulk of the play. And then something happens later in the play, and I'm not exactly sure what moment it is where that turns the corner for them. I, what, what ends up happening, I believe, is that Dr. Sanderson, by mistake, reveals that he sort of has feelings for her and their relationship kind of proceeds a little bit after that. Um, but their sort of romantic tie, I think is a, it's, it, it feels very nostalgic for plays of this era that even comedies about, you know, mythological creatures intervening in the lives of people also have to include a young love scene. (laughs) Right. 
Yeah. <laughs> kind of snuck away in a subplot. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think maybe the one you're talking, the moment you're talking about is they both reveal that they were at a bar with different dates and that they kept running into each other and noticed each other, even though they previously said neither of them noticed each other there. Right. And then Elwood comes into that scene and he says something like, Oh, I love how soft your voice is. And Dr. Right. To, to Kelly, to the nurse, and Dr. Sanderson sort of by accident, just by force of will, you know, says something like, oh, yes, me too. <laughs> and then everybody's like, what? What? <laughs> <laughs> and then they, they, they go off stage for a significant amount of time after that, and so who knows what happens off stage there. Um, right. But their, their young love and their interaction with Elwood uh, primes the pump for one of, I think, just a hilarious scene where early in the play, Sanderson is trying to describe how they've made a mistake. And the mistake is that they accidentally locked Elwood up instead of Vita. This is back to the scene of mistaken identity. And uh, Elwood goes, oh, you two young people, young attractive people, you made a mistake today? I think I know what you're talking about. (laughs) And he kind of raises his eyebrows and gives a wink. And they continue to try to explain what they did wrong. And, and, of course, they explain it in ways that are just vague enough that they could be talking about having sex. Right. But they could also be talking about locking Elwood up. And so Elwood just kind of further kind of raises his eye. I know. I get right. it. Hey, yeah. you're young. Things happen. It's this <laughs> When you're friends like you two are, sometimes things just happen. Yep. And then eventually um, – Dr. Sanderson reveals that she's like, he's like, well, if it hadn't been for Vita, we'd have never made this mistake. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> and Elwood kind of has a, a, a very confused moment where he's like, Vita? Vita? I kind of thought her time had passed. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, yeah. that's the kind of comedy that is throughout the play. Not necessarily specifically sexual comedy, but it's comedy of mistake. It's right. comedy of constantly misunderstanding each other, and that lends itself to the audience who understands all of it. You know, the whole the whole comedy of the play really is based on dramatic irony. The yeah. audience understanding what the characters cannot seem to communicate to each other. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and even within that scene, there's another thread that's going on, which is uh, Elwood is trying to introduce Harvey to them. And right, he will, yeah. So, <laughs> and, so, and they, they keep just, telling him that Vita's the one who imagines Har- Harvey instead right. of him in the scene where he's continually <laughs> trying to say, this is my friend Harvey. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just kind of brilliant braiding of two different things where people don't don't ever, you know, actually cross cross understanding with each other throughout it. Yeah, absolutely. And I think one character who is not as funny to me, I think probably might have been funny at the time, but I don't find Wilson's interactions with the characters to have stayed around very well. Mm-hmm. I think that he might be a character who's aged out a little bit of our public consciousness. Just some of his scenes, which I think are supposed to be comedic, come off in a very different way. First of yeah. all, just the brutalization of uh, psychiatry patients is, uh, in this, in at least for his character, played off for comedic effect, which I don't think has stayed around as being very humorous. No. But also his what amounts to sexual harassment of yeah. the daughter. And I, I regret that I'm forgetting the daughter's name. What uh, May, Mer- Myrtle yeah. May. Myrtle um, May. She, his the way that he you know he's clearly interested in her but he comes off real strong in a way that today we would call sexual harassment like yeah. at one point there's a physical joke written into the stage directions which i just don't believe you could play anymore where yeah. he essentially goes to spank her 
as she walks through the door by him, but she catches him. So he kind of gets his hand up on his head. And, mm-hmm. You know, I mean, that, that's a pretty classic physical move to like try to do something with your hand and get caught. So move it up to your head. But yeah. the idea that he's going to spank her as she goes through the kitchen, I mean, we just, we can't abide that anymore. We understand now as a culture, especially as men, that that's harassment. Yeah. 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 No, I think, I think you're, I think you're right on there. I, I agree. Um, as I was reading it, I was thinking about this play and thinking about trying to do it and wondering what I do with Wilson. Um, because it is there, there on throughout there's, there's, most moments of his character are like, oh, ooh. <laughs> that's that's <laughs> I, I don't know that 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 will definitely be a dead, dead space of air there. The, the scene you're describing between him and uh, Myrtle May um, is kind of this chase scene around the library where he is just too forwardly pursuing her. Physically. And he's huge. Right. He's a, that's, right. He, he's a hulking probably fairly uh, gargoyle-esque kind of a guy. So she's kind of, when she enters, she's kind of given him a frightened, like, oh, man, who's this in my library? And I think he interprets it as like, oh, she's given me a glance. Mm -hmm. I'm into it. Yeah, well, what is is kind of... uh the reason why we, we we're saying it's kind of framed as a joke or funny is one of the stage directions that is cueing us is she casts an interested look over at, um, a horrified and interested. look. Yeah. Yeah. So there's this like, uh, you know, this, uh, beat where he's, you know, this large hulking person is chasing her around the room and that just, it, it it's, 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 it's definitely not appropriate. Um, but I think somehow it was framed more funnily in a different time. And and consistently throughout, he's kind of this um, boorish, funny character <laughs> or the way he's written. And I, and I think I agree that, that, that the dating of that character would not translate well to, to a current production. And that's, that's a struggle with a lot of plays from this era is what do you do with some of that more dated um, representation of, of characters? Right, I'd be interested to go back and maybe watch a film of the 2012 Broadway revival yeah, and yeah. see what they did. Cause that was only six years ago. But honestly, our culture around sexual harassment has changed even in those six years. Mm-hmm. I would not be shocked to learn that they had done the full Wilson bits in that play then. But if we revived it next year, we probably should not. Not just oh, couldn't, no. but shouldn't. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And and but uh, other other than Wilson though, I think this play has a lot of carryover. There's some dated um, uh, some dated etiquette. attitudes towards women. Yeah, uh, like uh, Elwood's sure. etiquette, especially um, uh, kind of kind of uh, leaves something to be desired. Certainly, some of the scenes between Sanderson and and Nurse Kelly are are not great. <laughs> um, but I think there are ways to work around that. You can, you can, depending on the way you cast it and the way you do it, I think it still works as a play. I think Wilson is the primary one for me, though, that was like, ah. Oh, right, how, yeah, that, how that's the pretty this? obvious one that you'd have to figure out what to do with. Um, let's talk a little bit now, Jackson, about a scene that is not included in the play and why we think, in terms of the structure of the play, this scene was not included. We get a scene described, and I've mentioned this before, a scene is described to us between Dr. Chumley and Elwood and Harvey, where they are sitting together at a bar, and Elwood gives us a very detailed description of how that conversation and that evening played out. 
And I'm curious why, if you're married, Chase, not just include that scene? Because that scene certainly has a lot of dramatic impact, a lot of comedic effect, a lot of interest, right? As Dr. Chumley slowly, slowly is able to see and interact with a six foot tall white rabbit. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So why not include it? Why just leave it as a description? That's an interesting question. Someday we're going to release some of the video from these, hopefully, and you'll see like my eyebrows going like, what scene are you talking about, Jacob? <laughs> yes, I, like, I saw that on my video feed. I was like, yeah. I better keep talking for a minute. Yeah, Just stay, I, like, with me. stay with me. Slowly figure out which one it is. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, I, I, I think, um, well, certainly that scene is very important, right? Uh, also, both both uh, for where Chumley ends up at the end, but also, <laughs> I like throwing in the myth- mythology whenever I can, he slowly gets more drunk and is able to see Harvey. <laughs> I just got to say that. Uh, <laughs> and Which which is very in keeping with the, the Puka mythology in general. I think, though, I think that the dramatic device that it does is it makes us trust Elwood, makes, makes us ask the question of trusting Elwood a little bit longer. Um, because he comes in and he tells a story about where Chumley is and, and it's hard to get it out of him too. Sanderson has to ask him like six different ways to tell, tell him where Chumley is. Oh, (laughs) and and there's, there's like maybe the funniest moment in the whole play to me is when his description for that, because Elwood is describing it in just painstaking detail. Every moment he's, he's elaborating every say, and then we sat and we talked, and he said this, and I said this, and he said this, and I said this, and Wilson's like, move it along. <laughs> right. And finally, Elwood reaches the portion where he's like, and so we uh, we sat down and we ordered some drinks. Well, and then what? And then we enjoyed ourselves. And then what? And then we enjoyed ourselves some more. <laughs> right. And then what? And then we enjoyed ourselves some more. And Wilson goes, okay, skip okay. the part where you enjoyed yourself. And Elwood says, you're asking me to skip a large portion of the evening. <laughs> I think that that is just some funny, funny writing. The build up to that punchline is is just genius, I think. But yes, uh, Mm -hmm. Wilson is having a hard time getting the description of what happens out of Elwood, which serves some dramatic function in that scene. Well, and we're we're still sitting in is Elwood a is Elwood or Harvey a dangerous individual? Um, and, and him showing up when we know he corroborates through his story that Chumley showed up at the bar that we know Chumley was going to, to try to bring him in. And, uh, so we, I think we are left to wonder is Chumley alive still? <laughs> I think at, 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 at this point we're, we're, we're not sure where Elwood lands. We haven't had the scene where Harvey enters through the door. We don't know exactly how far he will take things. He's been very obfuscating throughout uh we we the scene before we've seen him in the library and then he calls from presumably very close to the library and uh asks if Harvey is there and won't tell them where he is so so w- some doubt is being cast on Elwood as as a character worth trusting and we get another scene where that's where we're basically just have his word um on where Chumley is and hoping that in fact he is telling the truth that he that he left with Harvey and he, but even then if we believe that Harvey exists what has Harvey done to Chumley <laughs> right i i totally agree with everything you just said and i also think that it because the audience doesn't get to see this scene played out we are left to imagine a scenario in which Dr Chumley is suddenly 
able to see a great white rabbit. And Dr. Chumley, who is the bastion of facts and science, right. who believes <laughs> that this is a grand delusion and that he alone can cure this very, very sick man and cement his place as the best psychiatrist in the country. And then we are left to imagine a scenario in which he begins to realize that Elwood is not crazy right. and that there is a six-foot rabbit at the table with him. And it, it could be that our imagining of that scene is funnier and more interesting than a playing out of the scene mm. could ever be. I love that. Absolutely. And this play just proves that, that what our what our brains can come up with is better than any physical representation of Harvey that a stage could come up with. Invariably, someone in a rabbit suit. Uh-huh. <laughs> right, because yeah, because those are the options. If you decided to physicalize Harvey, your options really are someone in a rabbit suit, some sort of projection, or maybe a more theatrical choice like someone just dressed in white or, you know, something that's not a rabbit suit but is still uh, allows for some imagination. And yeah. Jackson and I, coming from our particular strain of the- the- theatrical training, probably would choose the third option if mm-hmm. either of us were forced to stage Harvey. I don't know that either of us would put a six-foot-tall rabbit suit on stage. <laughs> uh, um, but even that might not be as great a, a, a choice as nothing. Yeah. Absolutely, because, yeah, I, I think the, uh, nothing slash the painting, right? So however you right, choose to painting. do the painting oh. would also indicate, like, allowing that to inform our imagination of what is happening is, uh, again, a brilliant choice. Um, but I, I totally agree that imagination and really, again, this this type of play, this is something a play can do, a movie can do it too, but this is something a play can do um, where it prompts you to use your brain. And and fill in details. And it's something that mythology does as well, is it prompts you to imagine a world where this happens and presents you situations where you get to believe or disbelieve that it happened. But in the end, you have to come down on, well, the door moved, the purse was gone, and now it's here. And these different corroborating things. So how can I believe that an enormous white rabbit is with <laughs> Elwood? <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think I, I agree that imagination is is the the best way to bring that about. Yeah, and, and this is the play of which the currency is imagination. Like mm-hmm. we've been saying, it's it relies on an audience. It relies on the cast. It relies on the design team to imagine a world in which this crazy, hilarious thing is happening and then fully commits to the idea that it is. I mean, I really appreciate the way that Mary Chase does not back down from the insinuation that a six-foot white rabbit that can speak <laughs> is in the room with right. Elwood. Yeah. Right? She she fully allows that to be the case. Without uh, she, she allows the characters to have doubt, but the play itself never takes any doubt that mm-hmm. this is what is really occurring. And I think that only that allows the audience to get to that imaginative place where when, when all you hear is footsteps and a door unlocked, you look at each other and go, he's there. Oh, he's really there. That's Harvey's right there. And let's appreciate for a second that this play won the Pulitzer Prize. Right, <laughs> like, yeah. A play about imagination and an enormous white rabbit and forcing you to think of, of other, you know, <laughs> ethereal beings won the Pulitzer Prize <laughs> for drama. Like, what a cool time to have <laughs> to have yeah, been around well, when that when that won. <laughs> right. And, and I mean, 
obviously this play would not win the Pulitzer Prize if it came out today, but that's how literature develops. Yeah. Right? This is a play of its time. This play wouldn't be written like this no, if it yeah. came out today. We'd be looking at a very different play, and that's why literature as a whole is such a treasure, not just the stuff that comes out now, but to look back at the stuff that was there and to say, you know, this is a, a an incredible story and an incredibly told story, and it's mm-hmm. not something that we as a group could create today. Right. You know, I, I mean, nobody would or maybe even could write a play like this in 2018. We're just not, that's not where our theatrical dramatic culture is. And so to look back and pull this, you know, comedic treasure out and say, but look at what they were able to do in 1945 Mm -hmm. and look at the way they celebrated it. Yeah. It's also, I I like that you brought that up. It also, uh, reading this play and and readings, uh, we recently recorded All Wilderness, uh, which I believe most of you have heard at this point, if you are listening. Um, Reading those two plays kind of close together, this time reading Harvey brought home like how important it is for playwrights to keep writing plays. Because this is a beautiful play, right? And it it grapples with really interesting things. (laughs) Most of it. But I'm, I'm getting there. This is a beautiful play and it grapples with really interesting things, but there are things in it that cannot play anymore and that makes it uh, hard to produce this play, as we've already stated. So it really encouraged me to be like, if I want to tell a story that encourages audiences to use their imaginations and grapple with ethereal things and and within that context talk about family and and uh, and systems and, and mental health and, and all that stuff, I got to write a play about it because a lot of the plays that that in my mind are of use to talk about those things are really hard to do now. So it, it was an encouragement for me to be like, this is on this is kind of on us now to to carry on and not just, you know, do the, you know, 2018 version where, you know, people go into rehab instead of a sanitarium or something like that, but to write a new play that that focuses on some of these themes that that I pulled out when reading it, but presents it in a, a more modern context. Absolutely. And the play that you write will be nothing like Harvey in form, yeah. in structure, and even in story, because <laughs> yeah. the story of Harvey works for 1945. And mm-hmm. I, I don't know that I, I may be a little bit in disagreement that I think a production of it could still work today, but at but but the writing of it wouldn't work today. Mm-hmm. You know, the way that this play is written is totally in contrast to the way we even imagine writing plays now. And right. so to look at the stories that are coming out now about comparable things and to say, you know, this is the 2018 version of Harvey. This is the blah, blah, blah. Like, uh, here's an interesting comparison. We read and talked about Cyrano a few weeks ago. Yeah. And a few weeks before that, we read and talked about Hamilton. And in our Cyrano podcast, we made the comparison that in some ways, Lim Manuel's Hamilton is the 2018 Cyrano, right? It's a play <laughs> yeah. about this witty and cantankerous, uh, you know, has to fight everybody, scrappy young guy, and watching him interact with this world in which he has to have a battle everywhere that he goes. So uh, you watch the sort of the mythology around stories develop and we go back to these old formats and these old character tropes and create brand new stories out of them. I would not be surprised if we saw in the next few years a play about about what imagination is and mm-hmm. how imagination affects our reality in the same way that Harvey asks those questions. Yeah, absolutely. And kind of kind of re 
re uh, re rebrands is too. Uh, I feel like uh, petty a term for it, but re reestablishes what it means within our our current conscious. I, I'm I'm excited to see or read or write that. <laughs> Absolutely, <laughs> that is the great joy that we have as people who read dramatic literature and also just as hosts of this podcast that we get to do this every week and pull plays from different parts of our the the you know the timeline of dramatic literature across the world and we get to compare them and we get to say this is something i've read that was from 2016 and this is something i read from 1865 yeah and look at how closely aligned they are mm-hmm. in a lot of ways and and i mean that's just that's why it's so great to continually be invested in literature of all kinds because yeah. you start to see the threads of humanity between these stories mhm well, we are out of time with this one for this week, but we'll be back again next week with another one. If you, uh, I, I know many people have been in Harvey. I know many people have read Harvey. So if you have uh, been in it, read it, watched it, we would love to continue the conversation with you. If there are other things that uh, you want to talk about, other themes that we may have missed, other characters that we could have spent more time on, we'd love to continue the conversation with you. We do that primarily via social media on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Uh, our handle is at NoScriptPod. Podcast, or you can email us as well, noscriptpodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to continue the conversation with you. If you liked this episode, if you liked some of our other episodes, please do us a favor and share the podcast. Y'all are the best way that we present ourselves to the world is through the way that you all talk about this podcast. I've seen a lot of you share it and mention things that you've liked, episodes that you particularly liked. That is awesome. Please keep that up. Share this episode. Share a different episode. You can find our podcast on Podbean, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Play. A link to the podcast is also always on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram on Mondays when it comes out. Mm -hmm. If you would leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or on Facebook, that would be a huge help as well. Definitely very helpful. Also, we are on Patreon as well. If you want to be a uh, supporter of the podcast via monetary terms, we have a bunch of great tiers for you over there. We have access to patron-only posts. We have, uh, we will say your name in episodes at certain tiers. So head on over there, take a look at that. We're still building it out, but uh, there, there'll be lots of fun things happening over on the Patreon as well. So that's uh, patreon.com slash podcast. Thank you all for listening. This has been our episode about Harvey. We'll have a new play next week. Yes, indeed. I'm Jackson Nikolai. I'm Jacob Mann Christensen. This is No Script, the podcast. See ya.